Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. This is the COVID-19 Echo Network Series 6, Session 1. It's Thursday, the 15th of July, 2021. And welcome back to the Echo Network. Well, this session was titled the COVID-19 Pandemic Response Pulse Check in Primary Care. And I know, um, well, I guess I want to first ask, how are we all doing? I know my pulse has been steadily rising um, uh, during the week as new exposure sites popped up in our region and now an outbreak in our area. So as the situation is changing rapidly, we'll aim to bring you as much information as we can this morning and I guess really while we're awaiting our advice you know perhaps some of our discussion will be about how we in primary care um, you know play our role uh, in the face of our local outbreak. So let's dive straight in this morning we'll be focusing on the following questions. How prepared are we for this next outbreak and what do we need to know to prepare while we wait for the word? What PPE and triaging will we be implementing in clinics? What roles will we play in supporting our community members either in quarantine, isolation or seeking to manage their risks? What roles will primary care be playing in the event of positive cases in our communities and in the context of a local outbreak how might we think about vaccine prioritization at this time so who have we got today um thanks to aaron block nice to see you and uh sorry for some late late breaking news um uh aaron's our grampians public health unit infectious diseases clinician uh, was coming along to let us know about what's happening in his region but um thanks for letting us giving us a public health update and i hope that um, you're able to provide us information about the um, barwon region outbreak um i shot you through a text as well aaron but hopefully you've been in yep beautiful communication lovely thank you and we've got kate graham who's our lead editor of the COVID 19 clinical pathways and she'll be providing us uh, with a you know heads up about the relevant pathways um, and any changes that have been happening with telehealth. Um, we're joined by Rowena Cliff, CEO of Westwick PHN, and Linda Govan uh, as manager of Goldfields, and she'll be providing an update on what's happening with our most vulnerable in our region and any other things that we might need to think about uh, in regards to uh, outbreak and vaccination at this time. Um, so with that, I, I think I'll just get straight underway. I'm going to throw across to you, um, Dr. Aaron Block. Thanks and welcome. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Bianca. Uh, yes, unfortunately, things have accelerated pretty quickly. Um, I am zooming in today from Wurundjeri Rand, so echo your um, acknowledgement and respect of um, Aboriginal past and present and any who may be on the call, First Nations people rather. Um, so I guess I'll give a little recap of the um, outbreak to date. Um, as we know, there's been an evolving um, outbreak in uh, New South Wales, Delta variant, which is, as we know, uh, more transmissible and um, uh, has um, some increased severity possibly um, reflected perhaps in the uh, increased rate of hospitalisation um, there with both older and younger patients. Um, so there are uh, exemptions for some to travel across the border. Uh, and a uh, removalist crew um, took advantage of those exemptions. There are questions around whether those were appropriate or not, not so relevant for us now, perhaps into the future. And they uh, did a trip down, I think it was on the 8th of July, around that time anyway, um, stopping off um, in Craigieburn in uh, Melbourne's north, which was uh, probably the epicentre of our last outbreak, um, and then moving across to uh, Maribyrnong, um, so a couple of stops there in terms of doing their removalist work and then going across up the Western Highway uh, where they stopped off at um, the Blan uh, Mobile 
uh, truck stop and, and um, petrol station at McDonald's, which are probably familiar to you all, very large hub there. And then they continued on uh, to South Australia before attending to New South Wales. Um, they were tested I think around the, the 11th or so, um, and then uh, so far two of them were positive. Um, a very rapid public health response was enacted following that. And I think, um, you know, it, it might be some comfort to us to again see the high quality of our response in action in terms of the very rapid identification and contact tracing that's uh, uh, been undertaken thus far, though the situation is evolving very rapidly. So um, what we found was, so the, the apartment complex um, has been uh, locked down with a similar response to the previous South Melbourne um, apartment complex. And we already have um, a number of cases uh, on the floor where the removalist um, took place, uh, including um, one gentleman who went with his friend to the football at the MCG and transmitted to his friend at the football, which I believe is our Barwon Heads case, um, who is also a, a teacher at Bacchus Marsh Grammar. And, and all of that has been sort of um, ascertained very, very quickly um, with um, further contact tracing um, and local responses, um, which is very encouraging. But the question is, you know, will we be ahead of it in time? And certainly uh, hope so. Um, the other thing that is worth mentioning is that there is a separate um, outbreak, which is related to a family um, who returned from uh, Sydney via red zone permits. Um, and that family uh, is also um, located in our northern suburbs. So I think it just demonstrates the sort of, you know, preponderance that we have for COVID to, to strike in our kind of um, more densely populated cold communities in lower socioeconomic areas. Um, and that uh, family is all positive, family of four. And there was a transmission um, uh, associated with a cold supermarket. Um, with one um, further positive there. Um, there has been a bit of commentary about, you know, rule breaking and so on. I think it's very important for us as health leaders to keep in mind that this is a, um, a family of, uh, you know, without revealing details, they're, they're not sort of our typical kind of, um, trying to think of the word, there are somewhat of a marginalised family with language and cold issues and that sort of thing. So. It's not really um, within, it's not really a positive exercise to blame or, or, or to sort of um, you know demonise these people in the media because you know a lot of the reasons for this are around not understanding or fear or those sorts of things. So it's always best for our public health response to try and be understanding and to look at how can we prevent these sort of things um, happening in the future. So I'll just um, have a look at my notes here in terms of the most recent thing for Barwon Heads. So there are three confirmed cases now in the Barwon, Health, uh, Barwon Heads household. Um, there's going to be some testing set up today at Barwon Heads, uh, detailed contact tracing of the primary school, which is closed. Additional exposure sites will be listed this morning on the Department of Health um, website. And of course, the suggestion is encouragement of testing and vaccination. I think the key role for um, this group as GPs and local health leaders is to essentially support the message that we really need to get the community out in force to get tested. Um, that's the kind of hallmark of a strong local response. And of course, continue to push the um, vaccination of all those who are eligible. Um, 
I think obviously now this is front and center again, but what we've seen is that over time, we get very, very tired of this pandemic, whether it's the, the public, whether it's the press, the politicians, or even us as doctors, and we do tend to slip into complacency at times. So one of the features of the last outbreak was a little bit of a lapse perhaps in opportunities to test some of the um, uh, index cases of various um, points of that outbreak when they were symptomatic. So I think the hallmark for us is to be right back on our guard and every single patient we think of, we've got to think first and foremost, could they have COVID? You know, should they be in my waiting room? What are my processes in terms of making sure that someone doesn't inadvertently come into the waiting room and expose others? How am I set up for testing? Are they vaccinated? Could they be vaccinated? And so on. Obviously, we don't want to send someone to be vaccinated who could be symptomatic, but they're the two the two sides of it. If they're if they're a um, person who's not coming in with COVID symptoms. Um, all right, I might stop there, Bianca, and I've also, if we've got time, got a bit of um, content to talk about in vaccination, but there's an yeah, update. Yeah, great. Yeah, thank you very much, Aaron. That's great. All right. Um, pop any questions that you have in the chat uh, for Aaron. What I might do is um, Aaron will, if you don't mind surveying the chat, I'm going to bring Kate Graham on now just now to highlight our um, PPE guidelines. We might have a little bit of a chat about what we're implementing um, in practice kind of really from today. And then we can come back and answer some questions, move on to a bit of a discussion about our vaccination in a, um, you know, prioritising vaccination in a resource constrained environment is, is what we're working with at the moment. Um, so thanks. Over to you, Kate Graham. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. I think since the last time we've had such changes um, from since the last echo, I mean, we've had sort of all the lockdowns across Australia. At one point, half of Australia was in lockdown. Um, and that was over the school holidays as well. So I think that we're going to sort of see um, a lot of people coming back into our practices who need testing, need testing on return, those kind of things. So I think um, I'll echo what um, Aaron said, just in terms of the primary health response we're seeing a lot of um, exposure sites in Sydney that were medical clinics. And today, I think there is a medical, or yesterday there was a medical clinic popped up um, in Victoria as one of the exposure sites, as well as pathology and radiology. So I think um, one of the things to really reinforce and to reinforce within the practice environment um, is that triage screening protocols making sure that everyone is asked and asked specifically not only about um, symptoms but about where they've been um, and any sort of requirements for isolation and really promoting that testing, promoting availability of testing when you have it um, and, again, um, the vaccination because I think that um, what we're seeing in Sydney um, is that there aren't a lot of uh, vaccinated people um, becoming very unwell, and that's the same as what we've been seeing overseas. And particularly once you've had that second dose of vaccination and that's had time to take effect, um, there's very um, little severe illness. So I think that's one of the reasons um, for the ATAGI um, and Federal Department of Health update that was provided this week um, in relation to vaccination timeframes and the um, spacing between doses. And that spacing was particularly aimed at the Sydney outbreak situation 
um, where you've got um, the need to vaccinate people in high-risk areas. They also sort of reinforced due to the differences in risk, having that discussion for people under 60 um, about AstraZeneca vaccination. So in Victoria, um, we haven't had any um, guidance that this is an outbreak situation that requires this yet, um, but that's something to be aware of um, and listen out for advice from state public health um, would be the place to look in terms of whether you need dose um, spacing changes or not. Um, and the other thing would be that thinking about some of your really vulnerable population, and if you've got vulnerable population who are likely to be at high risk places, um, then you know you might not want to wait for the full 12 weeks um, for them. We know that um, immunity is better at that 12 week point, but all the initial studies were sort of done comparing sort of quite narrow timeframes with the 12 weeks. So there's not a lot of um, study done in the in-between section, but we imagine that that would increase with time, but we're still showing that that second dose, even if it's given earlier, is still giving decent protection against the Delta strain, um, which is why the guidance has changed around outbreak situations. Um, I think really familiarising yourself and being aware of the changes in testing sites, um, that's something that, you know, practices will get a lot of calls about and familiarising yourself with the isolation advice again, because that is something that you will be required to give to people and knowing the tier differences of isolation and what they require, because communicating that, and particularly around the tier twos, communicating um, the tier two, tier one differences, that communicating when you've had that test for tier ones, you're still in isolation for the full 14 days, um, whereas for tier two, it's that test and release. Um, Everyone has been adapting really rapidly to Pfizer vaccination within clinic environments. Um, I think the one of the things that I wanted to flag is the Pfizer criteria um, changes so that all aged care workers are eligible for Pfizer within um, Commonwealth funded clinics. So that's general practice and um, GP respiratory clinic um, or GP vaccination clinics. Um, within the Victorian state health system, there are um, additional changes for eligibility so that all aged and disability residential care workers and staff and all 1A, 1B eligible healthcare workers are eligible for Pfizer vaccination through um, state-run health services. Um, the other thing to flag was that there has been um, a death in a 72-year-old woman from um, thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, and that really reinforces that although it's rare, and it is rarer in this population above 60, it's really something to keep in mind, um, and particularly sort of looking at the um, non-typical sites for clots, um, but being aware of it in any clotting presentation being aware of it with anyone with headaches, anyone who presents with abdominal pain, having those questions in your head, when were you vaccinated? Um, there's new ATAGI primary care guidance or Federal Department of Health um, guidance on that, which is quite good with a case scenario. Um, but I think the main advice as well for us at the moment is to monitor for further changes in um, PPE requirements. At the moment, um, the PPE requirements statewide have changed uh, back again to be um, requiring PPE in all workplace environments, including in non-front-facing roles. 
Um, so that is masking up for all staff at practices, regardless of if they're in the back room or the front room. Um, and that's really important. The COVID active COVID alert uh, for regional Victoria hasn't changed at this stage, but that is something that um, due to sort of what's happening at the moment, we um, really need to sort of keep monitoring and be aware of that because that's where sort of a lot of the um, changes for PPE are going to come from. Um, and a lot of their sort of information about screening, testing, those kind of things for entry to healthcare services. Um, keep monitoring the exposure sites. And I think really reflecting that fatigue, um, I think particularly in healthcare workers, the burnout um, when we've had to deal with all the changes with vaccination, all the changes with COVID, the sort of seemingly never ending um, conversations that you have to have trying to convince people to do things that are good for them and their public health. Um, I've just really wanted to flag again, the doctor's health resources that are on health pathways. We've got health pathways up there for COVID that might be worth refreshing in mind with particularly the practice preparation. There's a good section in there of what to do if you have an unexpected exposure site within your work. And that's sort of in combination with calling the Department of Health and getting rapid responses. So that's all from me. Great. Thank you, Kate. Now, while the questions are streaming in, and please do put your questions in, what we're going to do is what I'm calling a hot echo. We've abandoned our um, planned format for this morning, really, just so we can answer as many questions as possible. So pop them in the chat. Let's discuss what we're doing. Back to you, Aaron, um, for your additional piece. Thanks. Sorry, I just realised things have moved so quickly. Yes. I gave this morning's update, but I forgot about the kind of 24 hours before that, which was... Um, we set up a pop-up testing site in Balan, um, so that's available, particularly be relevant for the Bacchus Marsh Grammar. Um, a little bit of a shout out to the Grampians Public Health Unit for getting that up and running from sort of 8.30. The first test was done a little bit after 3pm, which is fantastic work. And um, yesterday they were really sort of um, swamped down there, so extended their hours when Bacchus uh, Marsh Grammar came around. The other thing I wanted to really reinforce is with that um, Balan truck stop exposure, we, we may be lucky, there may not be transmission there, we haven't got evidence of it so far, but we all know, just reflecting on that point before about people getting a little bit tired or complacent, that not everyone is gonna check in when they get petrol, etc. So we will have a ring around that in terms of the QR code data, self-identifying primary close contacts and so on. So, um, you know, it's over a hundred so far, but I imagine there will be some who, who may have stopped at that truck stop and, uh, you know, will not necessarily contact us or have details available. And that's where it's really critical for us as a local community um, to make sure the awareness is really high, that we're constantly pushing the, the message to monitor for symptoms and um, to test if symptomatic because, you know, we know from the previous outbreak where we thought everything was okay after our wallet case that, you know, you miss one link in the chain and then you can have a new outbreak again. So it's critical that we all work together and that's where the community response and the GP leadership is so important to make sure that we get the awareness high and pick up any cases that may have slipped through the net if they have. Thanks, Bianca. Thanks, Aaron. I'm going to hold you on the line because um, I think some of the things that's, you know, tricky for us is knowing, no, well, understanding that we don't, 
uh, the time needs to evolve. You guys need to gather the data and information to be able to provide us with that formal advice. And we kind of sit with that. Okay, well, what do we do in the meantime? What would be reasonable? I think we base that on now um, some really good understanding that we've developed over the time and hopefully through ECHO. Um, could you talk us through the back end of, you know, what you guys do and, and how long time things take? Because I know there's that new conversation that um, Jerome Weimar has been introducing where he says, you know, uh, of this at this exposure site, we have X percentage or this many of those people identified who've been testing and we're waiting results and this percentage have come back with negative tests. I just wanted to drill a little bit more into that and understanding that. Um, could you talk us through? Sure. So um, I guess if we use the Balan truck stop as an example that we've recently um, been managing. So um, the first thing that happens is we have our um, positive case. So in this case, um, it was the truck drivers um, and they are then um, interviewed by contact tracers. Um, if we sort of compare back to last year to look at the kind of changes and improvements, the first thing we can see is that, you know, our testing turnaround time is now sometimes as fast as sort of eight or 12 hours routinely, um, which is fantastic. The next thing is once the positive case um, is found, uh, we're on the phone to them almost immediately and the contact tracing um, starts to take place. Um, Simultaneously, while we're doing that, um, some of that information may be shared and, and, and the sort of alternative work starts to begin in terms of identifying um, their primary close contact and any high risk exposure sites. Because even, you know, two, three hours of a contact tracing interview may be very valuable time. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of that contact tracing interview, um, we're talking to that person and trying to go through every single place they've been um, every single exposure, every single interaction um, with other people. And then we have to go back and talk to those people again and again. And particularly, you know, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's, re it's been really interesting for me personally, having started the public health role, to see the difference between what's going on behind the scenes and what's playing out in the media. For instance, there's always, particularly in Victoria, a lot of jumping up and down if ever any part of the story changes. But what you find is that particularly with our um, uh, culturally and linguistically diverse um, populations, um, where it can be a little bit more challenging, that more facts emerge over time. It may be that you need a culturally appropriate interpreter and then more facts emerge. And so you have to keep going back and drilling down and then um, the most accurate story you can get emerges over time. So um, going back to our example, um, the truck driver's route is mapped out. And again, that's a good example of it took multiple times going back to this group to get exactly where they'd been. And, and there were issues in terms of gathering that. And I guess the other point is often people have um, fear of kind of breaking the rules or getting into trouble, which may make them reticent to give information. So it's a real challenge. So the third stop, key stop was our Balan truck stop. So then we immediately, once we've confirmed that, you obviously have to make sure you've got the right spot, you're not closing down the wrong place. We get in contact with the Balan um, truck stop um, using the um, authority of the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. Um, we um, liaise with them. Um, usually they're pretty good in terms of sharing their information. If we have to, we can compel them under the um, Public Health and Wellbeing Act. And we begin to work with them, um, looking at all the different people who may have been through. So we look at staff and they start to compile their staff rosters and they start to contact between the health department and the company or, or you know, McDonald's, whatever it is. They start to contact their staff and tell them to isolate at home. And we start to gather those lists. Similarly, we look at um, QR code, check-in data, 
Um, we look at financial data, all that sort of thing. So over that first day, we're gathering those lists and we also put out um, public calls via media. So some media interviews locally through the state, exposure sites, and people can also self-identify. So we get lots of people calling in saying, I was at this exposure site. Um, once we have that list, we have a process. The first thing we do is called a COVID first aid call. And that's essentially a brief call to say, you know, are you okay? Are you safe? You've been in an exposure site. You must isolate. You must get tested um, and continue to isolate. And that's kind of the first point, um, recognising that the more formal call may take some time. So this is a way to make sure we get to everyone as quickly as possible because, of course, we want to make sure that people um, are safely isolated before they may inadvertently become positive and transmit to others. Um, so that's getting to your point, I guess, Bianca, about or question about this were the number of PCC. So that, that changes over time, primary close contact, and this many have tested. So, you know, in best case scenario, I guess we're going to be getting all of those people tested, you know, within sort of 24, 48, 72 hours, considering that it may take time for those to identify, further may come forward the next day, um, and so on. And then we begin to get those results back. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, we don't get any transmission. And once we're confident of the numbers um, around that site, and that they're all isolated, um, then we sort of sit in for the 14 days. And I guess that's kind of when Jerome says, you know, we're close to being able to stand this site down or close this one down as a line of inquiries when we feel more comfortable about it. The other point I guess I'll just um, conclude in this um, response is around um, secondary close contact. So that's been, again, one of the hallmarks of our kind of uh, renovation of public health response and contact tracing over the last 12 months is around secondary close contacts. And so we spread a second ring around, um, depending on the risk of exposure at the site. So it's a very risk, low risk site, we won't necessarily, but in a high risk site, we will. Um, and so we look at people and uh, we once, once the primary close contact, that formal interview, who are their household contacts? Um, and what is their risk profile? Particularly, we're interested in anyone in a um, high-risk setting. So, you know, perhaps I was at the mobile um, and I live in a household with someone who works in an aged care setting. So that becomes a really urgent situation. And then we might prioritise me to go get an urgent rapid test so we can find out within one or two hours that I'm hopefully negative. And then we know that I haven't passed on to the person living in my house who may then have put the aged care setting at risk. Um, so that, uh, I guess, is a little That's bit of a... That's good to know. I was wondering about that prioritisation and I was going to ask you, you know, what steps are put in to prioritise the tier one exposure sites to get a test. And 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 it's interesting to hear how you're using rapid tests in that instance because I know you've been asking about rapid tests over time. Um the last thing is, um, will the T1 exposure sites and even T2 exposure sites been given anything so that they can bypass any queues to get into testing? Or do you provide particular testing facilities to them? Or are they joining the queue with everyone else who's just anxious because they happen to live in, you know, an area that has an exposure site? So, no, we, we definitely um, prioritise testing. Um, so, for instance, you know, the bland situation, we set up an entire pop-up testing facility specifically expecting those primary close contacts to come forward as well as the community. Um, other situations, for example, uh, at the um, some of the drive-in sites, a lane of the um, one lane or two lanes may be prioritised, for instance, um, that's happened before for a school, so they get a special priority access. So that's definitely a lot of thought goes into that uh, to try and facilitate um, rapid testing and to not rapid in the sense of gene expert, but, but no. in terms of access. 
and yep. to make sure that the key people we want tested get tested. So you're pairing um, the testing with the QR scanning and trying to see that you've, you're, you're catching as many as you need in that net. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, great. Thanks, Aaron. Um, we've got heaps of questions in the chat, which is brilliant. So thanks, everyone. Can I just in. add one more Please, thing? Please, go for the it. the same way that Aaron um, <laughs> got sidetracked by the most recent stuff, so have I as well. Oh, good. Um, and Rowena has just reminded me that um, due to the fact that Tail and Bend and the Western Highway is one long kind of continuous um, stretch of road we've had a lot of people um particularly in our border areas and border communities who go back and forth all the time um so just flagging that that is also um a place of interest for sort of particularly our western victoria communities and that there will be a border response in terms of um what's happening there and perhaps some more testing locations great thank you all right Let's kick this off. So, of course, uh, at this time, as Aaron described, we're going to be encouraging vaccination. But how are supplies doing? Asks how, if we have any further information about Pfizer's supplies matching demand in Geelong. Who have we got from Geelong that could answer that question? And Aaron, are you able to give us an update from Grampians? Do you know about whether there's been advanced kind of shipments of Pfizer to our area, given we've got these exposure sites? There, there has been um, some increased Pfizer supply um, over the next few days to the um, Ballarat region. So there um, was a, a communication that was either going to go out last night or this morning about some increased appointments that will be available. I'm not actually sure if that was because of this outbreak or coincidental, but certainly state and nationwide, we can expect Pfizer supplies to steadily increase the second half of July and then through August for the rest of the year. I can't give you too much in the way of specifics though, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, I am aware that Bowen Public Health Unit got an extra six to 700 doses of Pfizer this week, and that was early this week, so before the current outbreak. Um, and we've also been advocating to the Commonwealth for the Bellarine um, GPSC to have further Pfizer as well. So we're just waiting to hear on that. Okay, great. Thank you. And I know that the Bowen Public Health Unit's been liaising with EPIC um, because they're going to have drive for testing and demand for vaccine. Okay, thank you. So let's... Um, you know, think now about, well, you know, who, who who's going to be wanting vaccine at this time? And teachers have been sent a letter to say they can go to a hub for vaccination. Can we vaccinate under 40s in general practice? So um, information from VicGov can be very confusing. Is it included in phase 1B? Kate, do you want me, can I throw this one to you? Because I know this is part of what we were talking about, Commonwealth versus state eligibility. Sure. So um, I think when we're talking about under 40s in general, um, you can definitely vaccinate them in primary care um, and particularly if you're a clinic that has Pfizer stock. I think where the issue lies is if you're not a clinic that has Pfizer stock, um, vaccinating the under 40s um, and indeed the, like the under 40s, you can vaccinate with AstraZeneca. Um, however, that is where you want to have a really, really good discussion with individuals about the risk benefit for them particularly, um, what their individual risk is. Um, I think in most cases for most individuals, there is in a non-outbreak setting or a small sort of outbreak setting as we're having at the moment, there wouldn't be a lot of risk groups in that under 40s who wouldn't otherwise be eligible. Um, and so I think that's where 
sort of, you know, you're not going to have people with severe disease um, that puts them at risk. You're not going to have healthcare workers because they're all eligible um, through other means. I think what we do have an issue with is people wanting vaccinations now because they're frightened um, and not having access to an appointment for Pfizer for four weeks or so. But I think given the advice at the moment, um, where you know, we're still sort of working on a spacing of vaccination doses in general, you're not going to get full protection from your AstraZeneca until sort of your 12-week or 14-week point or two weeks after your second dose. However, um, what you will get is if you're waiting a month for Pfizer, you're then going to get your second Pfizer dose um, in a shorter period and you'll be vaccinated sooner than the person who had the vaccine today for the AstraZeneca. And I think that's one of the things that you can sort of reassure sort of particularly anxious people with. I think that it is ultimately up to the individual if people are willing to take um, the risk um, and the small risk of TTS um, and that they're well aware of the risk. And I think being aware of the risk and being able to understand sort of all the numbers and, in fact, what that means to them, um, I think that that's really important to have in those discussions. There's no restrictions on um, providing AstraZeneca in primary care to the under 40s um, and you are indemnified from the um, federal sort of point of view if you have had a full consent discussion. And I think that that's something that probably can't be undertaken in a brief um, vaccine encounter. And so that's where sort of I'd be recommending that they're the people that you use that additional um, telehealth Medicare item number four. I mean, not telehealth, the additional Medicare item number four um, in order to um, make sure that... Um, you're really getting all the information to the people who need it. Question, I had two patients, one after the other, funnily enough. One is um, in his early 60s and travels internationally and is has become very anxious about receiving his second AstraZeneca vaccine, which is due in two weeks. His concern is that um, due to his international business, uh, his the efficacy and the effects of his AstraZeneca vaccine won't hold up against maybe Pfizer. And he would be very keen to access the Pfizer vaccine if it was available to him. Um, I showed him the uh, guidance and the training um, information that was available to me, which effectively said that there was no evidence about compatibility between vaccines. And his question for me was, well, what if I scrap my AstraZeneca and get two Pfizer vaccines before I travel again in August? And I didn't really have an answer for him, in all honesty. The second gentleman um, was... 58, and he was diagnosed with superficial thrombophlebitis on the day of his second AstraZeneca vaccine, so he didn't get it. Um, he had normal platelets, and it's, he's recovered on NSAIDs and what have you. He has um, a complicated cardiac history and is anxious to be vaccinated, but now he's 14 weeks post his first vaccine, um, and um, similarly was very keen to possibly switch planes, which again, I, I kind of said to him look I'll, I'll find out but I think you'll probably get the AstraZeneca vaccine and I was just wondering if there's any expert opinion on what the best thing and safest thing to do is. Thanks Aaron. I love uh, your way of describing it as changing lanes. God, I might use that in the future. Um, look I think we'll, we'll save a, a more in-depth discussion of um, heterologous um, vaccine dosing for a future time but I think basically the point is in a nutshell there's been increasing evidence overseas that it is safe and highly effective. 
but we are operating in Australia, as we all know, unless any of us have been hiding under rocks in an extremely constrained environment with regard to supply. So that is the, the key feature at the moment. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, sometime in the future we do introduce that approach when we have, you know, the, the sort of the, the glut, um, as it's been colloquially described, um, at the end of the year. But for the moment, we just don't have that option available to patients. So we have to sort of, I think, advise them in terms of what are their options now. And that's what makes these decisions so much harder in terms of, you know, the, the, the medicine and the ethics and the individual kind of risk assessment. Um, I might be sort of, you know, telling you guys to suck eggs in terms of, I'm sure you're very good at this generally. What I always do with, with patients when I'm in that situation, because they can, we know, get quite upset and angry and frustrated is, is really empathise with them. And so I wish I could give you the choice of vaccines, but unfortunately we don't have that at the moment. So what can we do for you now? Um, looking at your two examples, so the, the one with the traveller, how old was he, David? He, he's um, in his early 60s. Early 60s. So look, to me, that one's fairly straightforward. He needs to get vaccinated with his second dose of AstraZeneca. There's no capacity in this country to give him a Pfizer dose at this point. But I would reassure him with the following information. Um, firstly, um, we found AstraZeneca to be highly effective against severe disease, hospitalisation and death. I'm sure you told him. Secondly, what we've seen, particularly from data in England, is Though the efficacy of the vaccines are different in the trials, the designs are different, when they're compared in real world with sort of broad scale kind of population-based studies from Public Health England and Scotland, we see those vaccines um, performing almost kind of completely um, on a par with each other. So the real world data has been really encouraging for AstraZeneca. So um, I think that's something to use for um, reassurance. And then the third point is that um, over time, it's likely that we'll all get boosters um, and we will all sort of catch up, you know, and there, there may be sort of boosting with different kinds of vaccines in the future. So the absolute, like some people think, oh, if I get an AstraZeneca now, I won't be able to get this other vaccine in future. The best thing he can do undoubtedly is finish his vaccine course if he's going to continue to travel to protect himself. And the second dose is particularly important against variants. And later on, there will most likely be options to be boosted um, with other vaccines. For the second case for the thrombophlebitis, um, I think, uh, I guess this goes into the TTS um, sort of concern and hesitancy. Um, I'm not sure in terms of time we want to talk on that particular subject around TTS and risk analysis in more detail, but basically um, the risk of TTS is much lower with second dose, so it's not zero. Um, and this person has not had an episode of TTS with superficial thrombophlebitis, so I would encourage them to get their second dose as planned. Um, if you find that they're still so hesitant and anxious that they won't do it, you have the option of seeking advice or referring to the VIXIS clinic. Thanks. And by all accounts, because uh, VIXIS, Barwon look after our whole Western region, is that they're really on top of referrals and they're actually quite responsive in regards to um, answering GP questions. So They also um, have um, an advice line that you can call and speak to somebody. Um, so don't be afraid to use that. If you're not sure if somebody needs a referral or not, um, that's a really valid um, option that we have in Western Victoria that nowhere else like Melbourne does not have. And I think that's one of the reasons that's contributing to us being more under control of referrals.
Great. So they don't need to wait in a referral queue and you can have that question about whether they'll be accepted into the clinic or, or not kind of at the head and you can advise appropriately. Yeah, great. Okay, thank you. Um, you know, why we're not pushing, is is there any talk about, you know, AstraZeneca now, Pfizer later, um, particularly now in the context of an outbreak where that risk benefit balance might be shifting? Uh, look, there's, there's not any official talk. Um, you know, you don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Um, but, you know, the, I guess, for example, um, as, as a demonstration of how things change, depending on the situation, when we had our last outbreak in Victoria, um, I contacted some colleagues in Otagi to say, what do you guys think about shortening the duration from 12 weeks recommended duration so more people can be fully vaccinated? And that, to me, I, I based that on the fact that um, the initial studies were done in UK, South Africa and, and South America, which showed the signal of increased efficacy with a longer interval. In March or April of this year, a very big um, phase three study came out from um, the Americas, which showed 76% efficacy after four weeks for all comers. So to me, that was very encouraging that, you know, a shorter duration um, may be okay, um, if, if even with the signal for better um, efficacy over time. Um, in any case, at that time, they felt, based on the risk in Victoria, that the benefit um, from the 12-week interval still outweighed um, the, the sort of, I guess, uh, risk involved in the, the greater weight for that period. Now, in response to, you know, really significant community transmission in New South Wales, they've changed that recommendation. So that has been a factor. Um, there was a very good um, Norman Swan uh, sort of segment yesterday on 7.30. You can all have a look at on iView. One of the things um, he and others were talking about was whether they should, for instance, push the Pfizer interval out to six weeks so that more people can get first doses of Pfizer. So all these ideas, I think, are bubbling around. But in terms of what will be the next sort of a target recommendation, I, I can't tell you, Bianca. No, that's okay. Um, you know, it would be helpful, wouldn't it? Um, and also, yeah, I'm wondering whether they, they're balancing um, diminishing AZ immunity. I mean, we, my understanding is that it hangs around a little bit longer potentially than the Pfizer, which is potentially a good thing, but am I wrong? Um, in terms of duration of immunity, I'm not sure. Not sure about that. No, one. okay. All good. It's too early to say. Now, there was a question earlier on the. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I think um, that that has been answered by Kate in a way in that, uh, you know, there is that available um, overseas data on the link that she's put up. Um, but it, it, it would be, and I agree, I agree with Shantini, that it would be really helpful for our patients if we could say, look, these are the facts um, and overseas uh, people who have been vaccinated have been protected in this way and there's only like 5% of people who've been vaccinated who would need hospital admissions as opposed to, you know, if they haven't been vaccinated. So that, that was my, the reason for asking just to say that, you know, we can actually give that extra powerful advice to our patients who are a little bit hesitant um, so far as vaccination is concerned. Um, and also, I suppose I'm curious. You know, I'm curious, I'd like to know, uh, in Sydney, um, of those uh, 70 or 80 people who are in hospital now, how many of those people actually have been vaccinated? Are any of them, uh, are any of them vaccinated who've been admitted? Because uh, it would be interesting to know, wouldn't it? Aaron, you know, we love those pictorials. They were kind of fairly esoteric, if you like, but now we've got real-world examples of ICU in Australia. Is anyone cooking up some great infographics for primary care, as Cathy says, to be able to use this as part of our uh, education? And, and sorry, not, I'll go they, back. They, That's a double question. It's a double-barrel question. Really, the question is, do you have that data at your fingertips? 
No, I don't, I don't have that data on this, my fingertips, but it, it's certainly out there and, and you will see it alluded to um, in media and on Twitter. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's only a matter of time before we have something more solid that we can use. But, um, you know, in terms of a sort of wholesale over, overwhelming kind of um, studies to look at, you know, rates of um, vaccination, hospitalisation, that's quite difficult, you know, globe-wide, but then you will see these population-based studies coming out of sort of, for instance, Public Health England or Public Health Scotland that do give those broad kind of headlines, which we then can, I think, translate into, um, you know, more approachable information for patients. And I think examples are really good. Um, for instance, you know, of the current outbreak, and I don't have the figure for you, but I think the majority of those in hospital are unvaccinated. Um, I'm sure it will come out or if it hasn't at times. And the other example, I think that was a really good one was at the start of this outbreak, there was this big party in mm. West Hoxton, I think was a suburb. And, mm. you know, whatever it was, 30 and then 40, um, the only seven people who weren't infected were those vaccinated. So there are those lovely examples that come out all the mm. time. I, I think a great communication approach is to say that um, of the thousands of people included in studies, we know that these give um, fantastic protection against hospitalisation and severe infection. And here's an example, for instance, this dinner party where the only ones who weren't infected were those vaccinated. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. And I think one of the other um, things that you can sort of use is in the last outbreak in Melbourne and again this time in Sydney, um, the aged care residents who have been vaccinated, um, while they were admitted to hospital, they were only admitted to hospital um, asymptomatically for sort of um, control of the infection at the um, residence. And so to have, you know, five people infected in one nursing home and six people infected in another nursing home or something like that, and none of them having severe illness is nowhere near the picture that we were seeing last year. Um, mm. So that's really also something that I find helpful when I'm talking to people sort of in that cohort. Yeah, great. Thank you. I'm going to now throw across to Linda and perhaps Linda, if you've been looking across at the chat, there may be some um, things around um, prioritising, um, you know, priority groups and how they might access Pfizer. Um, but thanks for bringing us, Linda, an update about what's happening with the, some of our most vulnerable at this time. Thanks. <clears throat> thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everybody. Um, hopefully I'll cover off some of the questions in what, what I've prepared. So just to start with PPE for practices located close to the exposure sites, if you need increased PPE supplies, please reach out to your practice facilitators. They will be in contact with practices today and we'll escalate any orders from these areas. So, and we've got surgical masks, P2 masks, gowns and goggles in stock. And you can also, also order online and hopefully one of the team will just pop that link in the chat for you just to make it easier. In other matters, in, in regards to Pfizer, um, the Pfizer EOI remains open and includes all recently onboarded practices that started with AstraZeneca in May. So that's another 26 that are eligible to apply. All practices that have applied will be advised of their starting date as more Pfizer becomes available. At the moment, we've got 39 practices across the entire PHN region who have access to Pfizer, 26 in the Bowen and Southwest region and 13 in the Grampians region. And the, the, these practices were initially selected because of they were further from uh, the regional cities, so further from the hubs, um, had less access. So that's the rationale behind their selection. And we, um, I, uh, our role will be to advocate to the department to, to get the next lot onboarded as soon as possible. 
Um, in regards to practices that aren't participating at all in the rollout, there's now an open um, EOI to start with AstraZeneca and they also will be able to um, be onboarded with Pfizer as well. We sent some information out earlier this last week about that, um, but if you've got any questions, um, just con contact our communications team or myself. Somebody put my email in the chat as well. Um, yeah, so definitely what we're hearing from the Commonwealth is as soon as more stock becomes available, more practices will be onboarded. And we've had about, I reckon, nearly 100 of the 140-odd practices that we've got involved in the vaccine rollout to date have put in an expression of interest for Pfizer, so that's good. Um, in regards to um, aged care, both first and second dose in reach vaccination clinics to our private racks have been completed as part of the Commonwealth um, vaccination program. We've also been working closely with a range of vaccination providers, GP clinics and GPRCs in our region to connect aged care or other racks with access to vaccinations for their residents. And these are either new residents or those that have missed doses and also for the staff. A couple of examples, um, a small number of racks in Western Victoria have received additional visits in recent weeks through Healthcare Australia to support staff and resident access to vaccination in view of the Melbourne outbreak in May. We've also had Aspen Medical step back into the space this week and they're providing a really flexible in-reach to uh, residents and staff. So that's been a real boost to really uh, focusing on getting um, the aged care staff vaccinated. Um, and we've also, we continue to have really great support from both our public health units in, in providing in-reach to the RACs as well. So that's been great. Um, in the bulletin that came out earlier this week to general practice, it, it did note that if we could encourage general practitioners to prioritise any aged care workers for Pfizer vaccinations, vaccination becomes mandatory by the 17th of September for this group. And finally, we're also encouraging um, aged care to build into their admissions process the identification of um, the COVID-19 vaccination status of their future residents and where required, we'll um, encourage these um, the families of the resident, residents to access vaccination before the resident is admitted. Um, that's, they're my key points. All right, all. Well, thanks for this morning. As I mentioned, um, you know, anything that's put in the chat, we uh, gather notes on, we'll send you out an email uh, probably tomorrow and um, we'll make sure that any uh, answers to any questions that have been uh, not answered um, this morning in the chat, um, we provide to you. And of course, um, anything that we don't answer today, we'll bring to you as part of next week's session. Aaron, given everything's a bit hot right now, I wonder if I can ask you, would you be with us next week again? Yeah, very happy to. Um, I've prepared a little bit of an in-depth look around younger patients on TTS and also a little bit on um, Pfizer and uh, pericarditis, or myocarditis. So happy to chat about that next week. Yeah, we'll do that next week. And, um, and uh, thanks. So tune in next week and we'll talk a bit more about vaccines. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.